You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. What, what? Today in studio, I have with me David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center. Hey, David. Hi, Susan. And we have our very special guest, a friend of the show, Leanne Jamison. She is the clinical director for Karen Atlanta, which is an outpatient treatment program for the disease of addiction. Welcome. Thank you, Susan. It's great to be here. I'm so glad you agreed to come (laughs) in this uh, foggy, rainy day that we have here in Atlanta today. We are going to be giving you contact information, so I'm warning our listeners to have pen and paper available so that if you are interested in learning more about Karen Treatment Centers, uh, both the location here in Atlanta and other locations throughout the country, we'll give you contact information, website, and phone numbers, so have those ready, and we'll be sure to remember to give those to you, but if you want to get a jump on it, go to www.karen, and Karen is not spelled the way you think, (laughs) it's spelled C-A-R-O-N.org, so that's www.karen.org. And if you want to know more information about the local programs here in Atlanta, please call 678-543-5718, and Leanne will be happy to help you. Mm -hmm. So thank you for coming. Thank Thank you you for being here. Thank you for Thank you for having me. Um, Before we get into our topic, which I think is a very interesting one, and I'm glad that you are uh, willing to to do this topic because I think it's very interesting, but as a tease, um, first I'd like you to explain a little bit about what Karen Atlanta is and what kind of work and the patients that you treat there. Sure. So uh, Karen Atlanta is an outpatient treatment facility for people that struggle with addiction. Uh, the primary issue that they are they are struggling with has to be in, of substance use. Uh, we treat teens from 14, the age of 14, all the way up to adults. So we have intensive outpatient services for those teens as well as adults. Uh, we have outpatient groups. We have uh, specialized groups such as early recovery groups for men, early recovery groups for females, and also the professionals group that we hold. Um, we also offer evaluations. So if somebody needs to come in for a clinical evaluation or assessment to identify what the appropriate level of care is for their treatment, they would come to us. We do a thorough evaluation uh, and at least get them connected and directed into the the specific direction that they need to be. Um, so that's that might be connecting them with different services as far as like residential or maybe a mental health facility or an intensive outpatient mental health. Um, we work with within the schools as well. So we have a, t- a specific team that goes into the schools that for early intervention and prevention. Uh, we also offer that at our offices. So again, you know, if they're evaluated and identified as um, just an early intervention level of 
Healthcare, we have that service. Um, so we are definitely collaborative within the community and mm-hmm. connecting everybody with the appropriate services as well as offering the services at our facility to help move through uh, substance abuse and recovery. Very good. Yes, it's a wonderful program. And one of the pro- one of the options that I think can be really helpful is the Teen Intervene program. Yes. This is pretty unique to Karen. So if you could just explain that real briefly sure. for us, because I think this might be an entry level that many parents and teachers uh, need to know about. Yes, absolutely. So uh, when they come in for the Teen Intervene, that is an early intervention program. Mm-hmm. Uh, we offer that as a group or as an individual session. So it is three sessions. It's highly focused on education and substance abuse and recovery uh, ta- and being able to educate both the, the individual and their family. So the individual comes in for about two sessions and then the family joins them. All throughout this process, they're also given different assignments to increase their awareness and knowledge of the addiction and recovery process. And at Care in Atlanta, we really believe in the parallel recovery process, so that's why we include the families in all levels of care, uh, and that is included in the Teen Intervene as well. What would prompt somebody to end up in the, um, to check out the Teen Intervene program? So, a lot of times now that the schools are being more, are well, I should say, yeah, they're more informed now of substance use uh, disorders, so they are drug screening in a lot of the schools. So sometimes if they identify, you know, if, if one of the teens has a positive drug screen, they'll be sent to us for an evaluation to identify what appropriate level of care that is, and sometimes it is the teen intervene. Or sometimes it's just the the uh, teen would go to their counselor and talk about maybe, you know, they're unsure if they have a substance use issue. So they would be sent to us for further evaluation so that we can get them connected to whatever services they need. So this wouldn't be someone who clearly has been identified as having a problem with a substance. This might be a a kid that gets caught smoking pot by his parents and they don't know, is this a problem? Uh, Do they have addiction or do they just need some education about the dangers and, and, and what to do and how to cope with stress in a better way? Right. Exactly. Um, so it's a mm-hmm. it's a three session mm-hmm. program, like three weeks, or is it three sessions back to back? It's we try to spread that out because there's a lot of homework that mm-hmm. that's associated with it. So we give them a packet when they come in, and they actually have to go through the packet. We will expect and the parents get a packet as well. Okay. So they have to do their own homework so that we can come together at the end and decide. Okay, so what is the next step for you guys? How are you going to move forward and support? Um, recovery or, you know, the next step, um, you know, outside of these walls. Nice. Um, Certainly if it's something that's helping open up communication between parents and adolescents at a time when, you know, they aren't talking. Right. That can be amazing. And it can be so overwhelming for for the families and for the parents and, and even for the adolescent who isn't really sure either. So they come to their parents or their guidance counselor or somebody in the school a teacher um, with some struggles and nobody really knows and there's so much information out there and um, it could it could become overwhelming so we like to try to take that process and help them through that um, nice. so that's a very unique um, option that I think um, 
I, I did want to highlight, so thank you. Yes. I think that's uh, real important for people to know that is an option at Karen Atlanta. Mm-hmm. So um, uh, Leanne Jamison is a licensed professional counselor. Um, she got her training at Georgia State University, mm-hmm. and she comes with a wealth of experience having worked at a number of different levels of care, mm-hmm. uh, everything from a PHP residential combination through a a real residential level mm-hmm. of care, and now the out, outpatient program at Karen. And one of the areas that you focused on among the many that you're very good at um, has to do with women and addiction. Right. And that's our topic for today because women are dying of the disease of addiction. And uh, earlier today, you were sharing with me some statistics that really, I think, um, highlight the impact that this disease is having on women and the change over time. Absolutely, yes. So uh, there, just alcohol-related deaths in general have increased from about, I want to say, 36,000 back in 1999 to about 73,000 uh, in 2017. So that's just in general. That's not just females. Now, if you look at females, the amount of alcohol-related deaths have increased from 2007 to 2017 by 85 percent. 85 percent. That's a huge increase. Huge increase. What was um, that time frame? I'm sorry. From 2007 to 2017. So 10 years. In 10, ten years, years, it went up 85 percent. 85 percent. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's a that's a huge number. A huge number for alcohol specific. I mean, right. we've been huge hearing number. that with opiates, opiates and with right. other drugs, but when we're talking alcohol specific, right? So within that, we're seeing when when they're coming into treatment, not even you know mentioning any kind of obstacles of getting into treatment, but when they're getting to getting into a residential level of care, say, um, they're coming in sicker. So they're being placed on. Actually, we're, another trend we're seeing is an increase in um, in their need to be put on transplant lists uh, for liver for liver for liver transplants. Yes, yes. for liver transplants. Now, are we on women at this point, or did I miss something? Or no, just across this the board, is women. Everybody? Oh, this, this, is, this is women. This is women. This is, women this is the trend that for are women. To be, they're coming at a point where they're already at a place of needing transplants. Correct. Severe limer, liver damage, mm-hmm. which is, um, we'll talk a little bit about how that might be happening for women, but uh, they are sicker. They're more ill. The effects of alcohol in particular mm-hmm. have been very, are very demis- devastating for women, mm-hmm. uh, much more so for men over a shorter period of time. And if you, if you really look and balance the amount of alcohol and you take into consideration that relative size differential between mm-hmm. men and women, even if it's the same amount of alcohol or less, equivalency, uh, women are having more problems with their bone marrow, more trouble with their liver. And you mentioned another important uh, disease that we're seeing more of with women. Oh, with their with their early onset of dementia and yes. their cognitive dysfunctions. Um, so so it's affecting them cognitively, cardiovascular diseases. Um, so just a range of different medical issues, and that's not even mentioning any of the mental health um, struggles that they come in with as well. Right. So 
So are these are these women in their 30s and their 40s? And once upon a time, because I've been in this field way too long, <laughs> if somebody came in and they were being referred over by a transplant list or they were at that stage of medical illness, that was usually like their third or fourth treatment, and they're usually later 40s, early 50s, mm-hmm. and often there's other other factors involved, like maybe undiagnosed hepatitis C or something. Right. But I'm not sure that that sounds like what y'all are addressing. Well, uh, yes, it is focused. I think that the majority of them are, I would say, in their 40s, maybe 50s. Um, and so what we're seeing is it's shifted as well as far as like you know the binge drinking earlier on that's happening later on now so these women are binge drinking in their 30s and 40s and they may not have had a problem in their earlier 20s or anything but also even later so in the geriatric patients we're seeing Mm -hmm. a, a large increase in binge drinking and alcohol related injuries all of that um legal issues yes STDs, sexually yes. transmitted diseases, yep. have gone up the highest rate in the uh, 60 and above age group mm-hmm. for both men and women. Yeah. So lots of things are happening in all of the age groups. Right. Around the early 2000s, we began to see a shift in <clears throat> who was using what and when. So we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about that shift and how I think that may be impacting uh, the statistics Leanne has shared. So please stay tuned. We'll be right back. This is David Donaldson with the Atlanta Healing Center, conveniently located in Lawrenceville, Georgia. At AHC, your success is our goal. Addiction recovery is about more than just not using. It's about becoming a whole person and addressing all aspects of your physical, psychological, and social needs. Please call us at 770-696-9862, or you can reach us on the web at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Ron Camacho, host of the Business Hour, on Fridays from 10 to 11 a.m. Join me as I talk with passionate professionals on a program that profiles the best businesses, business professionals, business practices, and fascinating individuals to get an insider view of how America works. 10 to 11 a.m. on America's Web Radio. Hello, this is Michael Daly with Atlanta Healing Center. We know that addiction is a brain disease. Addiction is a family disease. Addiction is a treatable disease. We have a caring professional staff with over 30 years experience to help you and your loved ones in your recovery. You can reach us at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today in studio, I have with me David Donaldson from the Atlanta Healing Center, and I have Leanne Jamison, who is the Clinical Director for Karen Atlanta Treatment Center. And again, if you'd like to know more about Karen and all of their facilities, uh, everywhere from New York, Philadelphia, uh, 
Warnersville, Pennsylvania, Washington, D.C., uh, several Florida. in Florida, and of course our center here in Atlanta. You can go to Karen, www.caron.org, and you can learn all sorts of interesting things about the treatment centers and the different programs. Also, Aaron Denneke is a PhD at Karen who is head of the research department, and she is involved in numerous research studies, and the results of those are available on that website, which are really interesting. A lot around teens, around screens, around... um, uh, all kinds of teen-related issues. So please check that out, karen.org. I also want to add in that we have a new digital learning resource. So you, if you go on there, it is listed, and you can register for uh, digital learning. So that's for parents, professionals, um, anybody that's interested. So. Thank you. Thank you. So right before we were talking about this dramatic increase in deaths for women related to alcohol, and I had mentioned that there was something that was changing in the early 20s, or 20s, 2000s, the early 2000s. it was um, certainly in the olden days, back when David and I used to um, first work in this field, it was pretty rare, actually, to see a woman come into treatment at any level of care for any reason. We just really didn't see women. And even earlier than that, back in the olden days when I was in my um, medical school and residency training, When we looked at what are the risk factors for becoming an alcoholic, Mm. the first one was being a man. Wow. Um, And being single and over 40 and divorced and that sort of thing. So um, women didn't even register. We didn't even talk about that. But around 2000, we began to see a difference. We used to see that men by far used more Alcohol, use more tobacco, use more pot, use more opiates, Mm -hmm. cocaine, whatever the substance was, men by far used more. And then we started to see the women catching up. Mm -hmm. And we began to see that in the 18 to 25-year-old range, um, we would see it was almost equal. And in fact, at that point, we began to see the shift where more women were using prescription drugs, whether they were the opiates, the benzodiazepines for anxiety or sleep, or um, the the stimulants for ADD or weight loss. Um, So women were out um, performing, if you will, men uh, with these substances. And so the equal opportunity effect has happened where right. now for many, not in all age groups, but for many of the age groups and many of the substances, um, you're just as likely to see a woman in treatment as you are a man. Right. And we're seeing more and more young people, again, back in the olden days, David, uh we never thought about having to detox a teen. Right. It, it, yeah. it just now, didn't I mean, even we had a lot of teens in the adolescent programs back then because uh-huh. it was easier to get them in, but they never needed detox. Right. Mm-hmm. And now it is not uncommon for teens, uh, young, young women, young men under the age of 18 to actually 
be far enough along in their disease of addiction to require detox mm-hmm. because they were physically dependent. Yeah. And so we're seeing this shift with more young women beginning their careers with um, substances at a much earlier right. age group. And now we're also seeing the unfortunate telescoping effect that Kathleen Brady at the University of South Carolina Medical Center talks about whereas women are getting ill faster from the disease. They're getting further along with end organ damage. They're further along, as you mentioned, with dementia. And in many ways, there are some complications with treating them. So this um, is really a worrisome Change, and I was really glad that you um, brought this up as a topic that you'd like to discuss today. Right, and and I know Karen actually has a lot of blogs is focusing on women because we are seeing those same trends. Yes. And what we are hoping to do is bring it to light, right? Educate more, um, let everybody know that this is not you're not alone, and to provide them with some hope. I mean, I, I had somebody in the intensive outpatient, a female who was in inspired by something that they read on the Karen blog that she made her feel like she was not alone because it was another Adderall, you know, person that was addicted to Adderall. So just being able to educate and inspire and, and let them know, let everybody know that this is there is something that you can do and you don't have to live in fear or shame, which is a lot of times they that's what keeps them from reaching out at an earlier age is, um, you, you know, you mentioned the equal opportunity. Well, as we have grown, you know, as females and have taken on more and more responsibilities, um, there's this stress that, you know, either society or our family or we put on ourselves to perform right. in every arena. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I am a, a full-time mom and a full-time, you know, employee and a boss and a, it, all of these. And, and, and if I can't perform at a rate that I think others expect of me or my family does expect of me, mm-hmm. then there's a lot of shame and there's a lot of fear. Um, so that's that's really... And then along with that, I mean, that just goes right into the cycle of addiction where, okay, I have to, mm-hmm. you know, shield my family from this and... You know, it just creates a lot more problems with mental health and with medical mm-hmm. um, m- medical issues. So um, all of that plays a role in, you know, just being obstacles in, in women reaching out. Even though we are seeing more women reach out. So I feel like there is hope. I see that Absolutely. there is hope because more people are educated. And um, That's an interesting phrase that you use, that, um, shield my family from this. Mm-hmm. In the sense that there is such a pressure to not let this impact anyone else in the home that I notice with a lot of our women that their drinking is a lot sneakier yes. than you would typically see with males. Where males are kind of like in your face. Here, <laughs> yeah. what are you going to say about it? <laughs> right. Women, women tend to ha- have more of the very unique hiding places. Very. Um, and, it's literally and, hiding in the closet. <laughs> right, literally. Keeping their boots perfectly stacked. Exactly. <laughs> and also, they often have a unique, uh, if we're going to stick with alcohol for a little while, mm-hmm. a unique drinking style. Many women drink in the morning. Mm-hmm. They get up. 
they get the kids ready for school, they get the kids safely to school, they come home, they start drinking in the morning, then they take a nap, then they're ready to get up, go pick up the kids from school, go to soccer practice, go to Cub Scouts, come home, cook dinner, go to bed, and nobody knows mm-hmm. that they drink mm-hmm. because they're not drinking at night. Right. They're not drinking in front of their families. They're they're drinking in the morning. Right. And so this is a, a back to that idea. They figure out ways to hide it. Mm-hmm. They figure out ways to um, not let people know at least the extent. Right. Uh, and so that's it's very interesting to me to see the difference in the pan pattern of right. drinking and how big a role stress plays. Right. Something else that really took me back was, and this is just listening, I, I, I run the, early, the Women's Early Recovery Group, um, but this is something that I, I heard on another podcast and, and information um, out there, is that women in their 40s are now being pressured, peer pressured, when they go out. And this is a big thing where it's just like, why aren't you having a drink? Why aren't you guys coming out with us on date nights anymore? Why aren't you, you know, it's my birthday. Have a drink. And there's drinks lined up. Um, so you would, you see that shifting too from like the, the adolescents and teens to now 40 year olds where they're feeling pressured and, so it's just anywhere you turn, it's, it's a whole different thing. David has often uh, mentioned the more unusual places now that alcohol has become part of the routine. Right. I, I mean, I think I'm amazed. You know, you hear people that are going to go to a to a bridal shower, not not bridal shower, a baby shower. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. And you never in the past would have expected to have to question them about how they're going to take care of their recovery while they're mm-hmm. at a baby shower because right. it would not have been an issue right. until these past few years where there's going to be mimosas and there's going to be all kinds of um, drinking games, guessing the gender games, and mm. they all include alcohol except for the mom. Yep. Most of the time, hopefully. Right. <laughs> hopefully. 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 <laughs> yeah, but, um, you know, Bible studies. Bible studies, mm-hmm. prayer meetings, things that just would never have included alcohol, at least where I grew up. Um, right. Well, and you think about it, too. I mean, doesn't Kroger have a bar? Like, one of the Krogers has yeah. a bar mm-hmm. in Couple Starbucks. Of them now. And like, right. It's crazy. You go to the movies. So, yes. Go to absolutely. the movies. Go to check out at Walgreens. And right. there is uh, for sale the little uh, mommy sippy cups, the plastic glasses of yeah. wine, you know, on sale at the checkout counter. Right, right. So... People can't go to the movies. They can't go to pick up their prescription or buy their Band-Aids or whatever without it being right there, available. So it's more available in places that you would never have thought of before. I mean, I can't imagine the idea of, um, you know, drinking at a movie, where now it is a very common. It's a socially acceptable thing. But and yeah. the idea that you talk about women's peer pressure, um, I, I remember dealing, talking with this one woman about Alta, mm-hmm. women's, te- well, tennis, but for, this was a women's tennis group, but she was talking about how all of the afternoon tennis things are actually just drinking occasions Um, and that's not something I ever would have even crossed my mind Um, yes I mean it's inundated everywhere exactly the play dates Mm -hmm. um, mommy play dates baby play dates so integrated into lifestyle of 
And what's also interesting is what's becoming the normal amount of drinking actually fits the definition of binge drinking. Of binge drinking. And that's a shift. That's not good. And we're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about what is low-risk drinking for women. We'll be right back. The disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge, not just for the person suffering its effects, but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp. What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? And what is the best place to go for the care that is needed? We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at AHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770 770- 696-9862. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Detailing Addition. Addiction. <laughs> this is a day. I tell you, this is a day. This is Detailing Addiction. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Today, David Donaldson and I are happy to have Leon Jameson, who's the clinical director for Care in Atlanta, an outpatient addiction treatment center that treats not only adults, but treats adolescents and young adults. And they have specific programming um, for these different age groups, and they have some gender-specific programming as well. So there's lots of different offerings that are there. If you're interested in finding out about that, please go to www.caron.org, and you'll be able to get some very good and helpful information. And um, Leanne and her team will be very happy to talk to you. So right before the break, we talked about low-risk drinking. 
Um, and David, you had a comment. Well, I was I was <laughs> commenting that today's what's considered normal drinking actually would meet the criteria for binge drinking. Correct. Um, um, but then we also often talk about what's considered low risk. Um, research has shown that there really is no such thing as it's low a, risk it's drinking. A <laughs> it's a unicorn. If you see it, take a picture of it. Very rare. Very rare. But what's defined as low risk drinking, um, Dr. Blank? <laughs> so, um, first of all, we have to talk about what's a standard drink uh, because this is where things start to fall apart pretty quickly. So, for most people, a standard drink is 12 ounces of regular octane beer. This isn't high gravity <laughs> beer. This isn't it's a... It's not the craft beers, It's huh? not the craft <laughs> beers. It's not the big old cans of beer. Um, it's a 12 ounce can of 3 to 4 percent alcohol. When we talk about a standard drink regarding wine... I can guarantee that almost every restaurant pours a a bit heavier than this. Mm -hmm. But if you're drinking white wine, that's five ounces. And if you're drinking red wine, because it has a higher alcohol percentage, that's four ounces. So we sometimes have, at our office, we have eight-ounce little um, bottles of water. For people, so I'll say it's half of this tiny little bottle of water. That is a standard drink of wine. And I'll always ask people, if you're having a dinner party and you were buying bottles of wine, how many servings would you plan? People have no idea how many servings are actually in a bottle of wine, mm-hmm. um, but it's closer to six and seven than it is four to five, as wow. most people think. So people pour heavy. If you're using distilled spirits, it's one and a half ounces. It's really a shot glass, one and a half ounces. Um, that is a standard drink. Mm-hmm. So when we get in our minds the standard drink so for women and anybody over the age of 65 a standard drink is one drink per day no more than seven a week for low risk drinking this isn't no risk drinking but low risk drinking no more than seven a week, and you can't save all seven for Saturday night. <laughs> can't stockpile. No. So for men under the age of 65, it's two drinks, two standard drinks per night, and no more than 14 in a week. And again, you can't save those all for Saturday night. So when you really challenge people to look at how much they're actually drinking, they're drinking a lot more than standard drinks usually, yeah. and they're they're nowhere near being able to keep it in their low risk range for at least a lot of our patients. Mm-hmm. Other folks, and I hope lots of people listening today will look at how you drink and and at at the very least keep yourself to low risk drinking mm-hmm. uh, if you can. If you can't, then there may be. Mm-hmm. more of an issue but most people don't do that right and you were when we were talking earlier you mentioned something very interesting about i mean going back to the medical portion of it that women do not have a certain enzyme correct um and this is why we're seeing more sickness as well so so one of the things that we know is that women are missing an enzyme in their stomach mm-hmm. 
So when they drink alcohol, they're missing alcohol dehydrogenase, which, which men have in their stomach. So when a man has a drink and the alcohol hits their stomach, they start detoxing the alcohol already. So only... Um, part of that alcohol actually gets into their bloodstream. Mm -hmm. So they don't get the full dose. Part of it's already started to be um, detoxified. Women are missing that enzyme. And so whatever they drink, all of that alcohol gets into the bloodstream, Mm -hmm. and it's delivered to the brain, and it's delivered to the liver, And then when it hits the liver, it starts the detoxification process that for men started back in the stomach. So that means that their liver and their brain get the full dose. And that's why we see the toxicity for brains for women Mm -hmm. and the risk of dementia and uh, blackouts and other kinds of problems that we know women have. And also, men can have them too, don't get me wrong, but women are more at risk. And that um, full dose gets to their liver, and so that's why their liver has more of a challenge because it gets the full dose of alcohol, right. where for men it's already started to be detoxified a bit. And wow. then we see the other group who are high risk and people don't usually talk too much about, but those are folks that have had gastric bypass or a gastric sleeve so for men or women we're now cutting down the size of their stomach Mm -hmm. so when they drink it all for men and women it gets into the bloodstream and we see a lot of folks in a very short period of time after these surgeries suddenly realizing wow a little bit of alcohol goes a long way and many people end up um with um the need for treatment for alcoholism right which ties right into that illness and right into the transplant that you're mm-hmm. like wait a minute what <laughs> this early right yeah. right yeah. um so but it's, so i know you wanted to talk about um women in particular in terms mm-hmm. of their barriers to treatment and some of their issues that specifically um Um, might hinder their ability to succeed with treatment. Mm -hmm. Um, Trauma issues, shame issues, expectations of families. Financial issues. One one issue I was actually surprised with, with a lot of um, the women that we've worked with that were members of affluent families, is the expectation that they remain a really good hostess. Absolutely. Even if they're not going to have a drink themselves. Right, right. And no, go ahead. Yeah, that they throw the dinner party. They have everybody, all the employees over for, you know, the holiday parties. They travel and mm-hmm. host the the tent at the golf tournament or whatever. And that right. they're going to be very actively engaged in making sure that everybody has plenty to drink yep. and enjoys themselves. Exactly. Well, at the same time, it's how are you taking care of yourself, especially, you know, if you're in early recovery. And, and a lot of time is spent... Um, in their early recovery, just trying to manage all of those, the, you know, expectations that are still there from their families, from, you know, their husbands, from their parents even, from their kids and all of their friends because they are hosting these parties still. So, um, or their management or sales force or their, um, they are 
as part of their job, having to travel, yes. host events, take customers and clients to dinner. Right. Uh, that's still part of the expectation of their work. So it may not just be being the hostess for their spouse. Mm-hmm. It's the hostess because... That's your job. That's your job. And Absolutely. that's part of the requirement um, that you that you engage in right. these kinds of activities that put a whole stress and also give a lot of permission that it's okay to be drinking. Right. And a lot of struggling with, well, why can't I, you know, just have a drink and getting angry at the whole process and the fact that they do have this genetic predisposition and all of um, the other factors that have engaged to cross them over that line into, um, you know, addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, there. I mean, there are a lot of barriers, you know, and I feel like we touched on a lot of them just with the peer pressure and with work expectations and their own personal expectations and or, you, know. you mentioned the kids expectations yes absolutely like <laughs> I mean, that's still their mom, right? So it's, you know, mom was always there too. And, and again, it's, it's both parents, but, um, in a lot of, of, of women that, that we see it is, they were expected to be there for, you know, the PTA and, um, being able to drop them off and pick them up from sports events and, and carpool and, and all of these, um, different expectations. So when, and the kids, I mean, and again, it, it ranges or it varies from age, right? So looking at the, well, Mom, why can't you just do this? How come we can't hang out over at this place anymore? Well, maybe that that mom might have an issue, too, that's unaddressed, you know, that hasn't been addressed yet. Um, so the, the, the children have been impacted by this as well, and that's why we look at it as a family recovery process because mm-hmm. um, it has impacted every single person in this family and helping, you know, the children to become educated and understanding of, of what this shift is. Um, but yeah, they, you know, sometimes they don't, they, they can't grasp it. So they're not understanding why life has to change. Why mommy has to go to a meeting. Right. Why, you know, why and the guilt of just right. like, mom, why do you have to leave again? I mean, you were gone for 30 days, 45 days. Aren't you fixed? Now you, you now you're going to go on Saturday morning. And right. You're not going to be home on Sunday night. And right. You have to go every night or every lunchtime. So yeah. So and it comes from the husbands too. And I'm not saying that this doesn't happen with males, but you know, if we're focusing, you know, with the focus on females, that is mm-hmm. there. That stressor of just, well, why do you have to do all of this mm-hmm. still? Yeah. And but, and part of what what we notice is that. Kids and family members are pretty good at minding their P's and Q's for the first 30, 40 days. But then they start having all of their demands coming up and their feelings mm-hmm. coming up and their uh, emotion, emotional issues. And if a mom isn't prepared to deal with that, suddenly they can be surprised right, by right. all the feelings that start coming at them. Mm-hmm. And uh, the families held it together and then their needs start to need to be met right. and then creates a lot of uh, stress and triggers and that's a high relapse right. period of time. Right. Um, and I was, that's the importance too. I mean, if somebody, the first step would be getting into, depending on, you know, the severity and appropriate level of care, if you go into a, a, a residential treatment facility, 
there, the importance of aftercare, I cannot stress enough yes. because you are reintegrating into this life um, with all of these demands and additional, you know, the stressors don't go away um, just because you're trying to heal. So being able to manage that, it's so important to have people around you that can help support you mm-hmm. and, and fully understand. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about recovery and why women have an advantage in recovery. So thanks for listening. We'll be right back. Perhaps you are struggling to cope with the disease of addiction. If not, you probably know a family member or friend that needs help in battling the cravings and the personal and professional damage done by the effects of drugs or alcohol. Get a pen and paper and be ready to write down the following. These are the issues that the trained staff at the Atlanta Healing Center address and treat every day. Their doctors and counselors with over 40 years of practice in the field of addiction can treat the suffering individual in a thoughtful, compassionate, and experienced manner and guide him or her along the path to recovery. So call 770-696-9862 and speak to a knowledgeable staff member about how you or your loved one can be helped to enjoy a better and healthier life. More information is also available on the website at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schertz, every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is Dr. Susan Blank, Medical Director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional 12-step facilitation. And we can even offer you, if appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is America's Web Radio. I'm Dr. Susan Blank, and you're listening to Detailing Addiction. Today, David Donaldson and I are very pleased to have with us Leanne Jamison, Licensed Professional Counselor and Clinical Director for Karen Atlanta. Again, here's your chance to write down phone numbers and websites, www.karencaron.org, or you can call 678 678- Five four three five seven one eight six seven eight five four three five seven one eight, and um, they'll be very happy to answer your questions and help you um, find the place that you need to be if you need some help or if you have questions um, that you need answered. They're a great source of help with that and um, can get you where you need to be. So. Mm-hmm. Right before our last, um, the ending of our last segment, we were talking about, you know, it, it's tough. Women have a hard time sometimes getting into recovery. There are barriers to their treatment. Sometimes they don't have adequate insurance. Often finances uh, can generate um, 
or the lack of finances can generate stress in their ability to be able to get the, the care that they need. Women are more likely to drop out of treatment prematurely, unfortunately. Sometimes that's a child care issue. Sometimes that's a financial issue. Sometimes it's a housing issue. Sometimes it's... Um, but and the financial issue real often is they're feeling like that money should be spent for one of the children's mm-hmm. activities or events or special right. schools mm-hmm. rather than on taking care of their own illness. Right. right. So there's lots of reasons that women sometimes have uh, barriers to treatment and barriers to being successful that many men don't have to face. Now, yes, men have to face financial problems, and yes, Uh, Men are fathers, and they hold down jobs and all of those kinds of things. I don't mean to minimize the impact of the disease on men, but these barriers seem to result in women sometimes leaving treatment prematurely, sometimes not doing all of the things that they might need to do to sustain their recovery. But... All that negative being said, one of the beauties about women when they get recovery, Mm -hmm. when they accept it, when they um, are, are willing to do what they need to do to stay sober, they are often much more successful than their male counterparts in remaining sober. And so a lot of those barriers sometimes become ways in which they have meaning and purpose in their life mm-hmm. and motivation for them to stay sober and to uh, and to do the right thing right so that's the that's the flip side of it is women are um, can be very successful in right. their recovery right I guess just like you were saying you know some of the barriers like we were just talking about you know children also challenging like mom why do you have to do this why do you have to keep on going to this meeting why can't you just spend time with us that when they like you said dr blank when you get past that point of just full acceptance and um understanding of what life can be like sober um those become the motivating factors mm-hmm. those become i want to stay sober because i have this amazing relationship with with my children with my husband with my family with myself um and they're learning to find their worth and what they're doing well, you know, staying motivated mm-hmm. for their jobs and their careers and their children and their families. So um, it's just about pushing through that. And there mm-hmm. is hope that, um, it, and it's a beautiful thing when they can get to that point. Uh, and and the support that surrounds them um, when their families can get to that point as mm-hmm. well. And when they can see the changes in the woman in their their life who has this disease, yes. when they see that um, that beautiful person emerge from the depths of despair that the disease sometimes takes them, um, their families often see that change and mm-hmm. can appreciate it and can be more supportive. But it is a transition, and and to yes. your point, um, this is what we say at the Atlanta Healing Center. I know this is what you say at Karen Treatment Centers. Family has to be involved. Yes. They have to be educated. They have to be supported. They have to learn their new role. Right. Um, and, and they have to be able to 
come to accept that there are going to be some changes in their lives, too, and that it can be really good. Absolutely. Yes, that transition is, again, just like, you know, we look at the individual going through early recovery. It's the entire family going through early recovery. Um, A lot of times there's some pushback, and it's not intentional. It's not malicious. It's just I'm not, first of all, just like, you know, I think trauma was mentioned, mm-hmm. right? You mentioned the underlying issues of trauma and women. Uh, I think one article stated there's the the women. Uh, let me um, hold on a second. It's anybody in recovery. There was like a ninety percent. Ninety percent of people that struggle with substance abuse have some sort of trauma, whether it happened early on in in their lives or through their addiction. Um, so, if we look at that as far as the women specifically coming in, just knowing the majority of them have trauma. Well, I always put it on the family too; they have gone through some trauma as well. So they're in that trauma response and that early recovery, not right. trusting. Um, you know, they have that increased heart rate if they get that phone call, or you know, if they're concerned. Oh, are they really going to a meeting? Mm-hmm. They um, look tired. Right, right. Okay. Your eyes, you know, I'm not really sure what's going on. Um, so there's that trauma response from the family and being able to move them or go on that journey with them of, of the early recovery to learn to trust each other again and to understand the difference difference in roles because for a long time they were the caretaker. You know, mm-hmm. it was uh-huh. not adult-adult. It was parent-child. Um, so being able to move to the adult phase with both of them in that relationship is imperative. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a journey. It is a journey. <laughs> yeah. But it's it's a place that so often they don't want. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of power in staying in that parental role, and you yes. don't necessarily want to give that up. And there's also a lot of power in being in that irresponsible, I just keep disappearing place. Right. So recognizing they got to make those changes mm-hmm. if they want to stay sober. Right. Absolutely. And like I said, it's you know, you can see it happening and it's not this malicious thing. It just it's the pattern that came about because of active addiction. So, you know, just reassuring them that it can get to that point where, you know, we it's not about power and control, it's about us together. Um, and a new normal, which yes. is really um, not easy necessarily but a lot easier Mm -hmm. and a lot more honest and a lot more connected people are connected you see the families look at each other you see them being able to communicate and Mm -hmm. share feelings and talk about uh, all kinds of things from important to mundane but Mm -hmm. uh, to do it in a way in which they've rebuilt trust and they've learned why they love each other again and and just figure those things out makes going through you know crazy times um, a lot easier that kind of recovery builds a resilience for all the family members and right. really helps them to be better than they were before. Right. Which is the gift of recovery. Yeah, that's really true. Mm-hmm. And that's what I, I really love about this work okay. and I love about uh, seeing people and hopefully people will um, as they say in 12 Steps don't <laughs> don't give up before the miracle happens. Right. You know, stay 
stay engaged and and keep trying and so working in the outpatient setting Mm -hmm. like you do seeing this as a chronic illness where people need to continue to have recovery and recovery professionals in their life they may not need to see you every day but they need to be able to touch base with you if they're struggling again and that's the beauty of the outpatient uh, model of recovery which I really think is where people get and stay sober Absolutely. So the work that you do um, at Care in Atlanta, I think, is um, is wonderful. The specialty programs that you have for women, mm-hmm. I really like that. And of course, you're doing them, so that's uh, <laughs> that's another reason why um, why they're extra special. And Thank then the you. family program, right? And the family program and aftercare is really that's very right. important. And we've we've just found that with our families too. Often families will sometimes stay engaged even if the patient, mm-hmm. um, for whatever reason, cannot. Absolutely, um, the families do stay engaged, and that um, I think helps helps them and helps improve the chance they might so get their loved one back. Right. With your fam, with your women specific program, do you get the luxury of being able to co lead those groups? I the women's program uh-huh. I lead them. I know, but do you oh. get to have a co-therapist in there with you? Unfortunately, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> <laughs> what an amazing experience when you get to that place. Yeah, <laughs> to have two therapists dealing with all the dynamics that happen in, a, in yes. a, any group setting, right? But in particular, in women's group mm-hmm. settings, right? There's a lot that happens, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? And the um, the study that was done at Yale University looking at recovery, the differences in the programming and the recovery for men versus women. And it's a way longer story than we have time (laughs) for today. But the idea that they recognize for men, truly, people, places, and things are what they need to avoid. Mm. (laughs) Because that's what triggers them most often to um, want to use again. Mm -hmm. For women, it's stress and stress-related situations, often relationship um, situations. So learning to be able to deal with stress, recognizing it, good things, bad things, all these things cause stress, and being able to learn some new coping skills. Right. And that's the emphasis for women in recovery. Mm-hmm. want to thank our guests today. Thank you, Eliane. Thank, um, thank you, David, for being here. And thank all of our listeners for being with us. And we look forward to seeing you next week on Detailing Addiction. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.